Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode... What exactly is couscous? The history of couscous and Israeli couscous. Plus, the couscous debate. Is it pasta or not? All right, we're back with another episode of The Dish. Yes, we have just done a mega triple episode on tapas, so we figured it was time to move on to something a little bit different. Exactly. And, well, I was going to talk about North African food today. That was sort of the plan. I was going to get into some of that, like that sort of Berber-ish thing. Berberish kind of. Berber cuisine. Yeah. Which I might still get into in another episode, but I started researching couscous or couscous. Couscous. Actually, I think that's the correct pronunciation if you're actually in North Africa. It's couscous. And not couscous, but uh, we're probably going to call it couscous because that's what we all understand, I guess. I mean, couscous does make sense, to be honest. Yeah, couscous. Couscous. But yeah, I started researching it and I was like, oh, this will be a 10 minute segment. And nope. Wrong. It's crazy. Couscous is crazy. You're going cuckoo for couscous. Exactly. So yes, in this episode, we'll be focusing on one specific dish. Don't like, don't take this... I don't know whether it's like a Western opinion that couscous is just a side dish. It really isn't when it comes to North Africa. It's really like it's a center place sort of dish. No, I have to say that growing up, I mean, obviously we didn't have a lot of couscous anyway. It wasn't really like a thing. So it was more as I grew up that I became aware of couscous as something that you would have. And but then it was always sort of considered like almost like a substitute for rice, I guess. Yeah. So like a side dish, a side carb sort of thing. And it was only when we hit Morocco that I was like, what? All right. This is like, it's special. Yeah. It's actually got way more uh, pedigree behind it, I guess, than than you'd think living in the Western world and only having it occasionally. Uh, It's a really important dish in North Africa and it has been for a very long time. And we'll get into that history throughout this episode. But just for a quick sum up on what couscous actually is... Uh, it's a durum wheat-based granular starch. So, yes, it comes from wheat. It's not its own grain like rice would be its own grain, but mm-hmm. it's a wheat product. Though it, it can actually be made from other grains. It's just that the wheat-based one is by far the most popular one that's been around for a long time now. Yeah. So, it could have been made from things like barley in the past or millet, millet flour. Oh, was, yeah. And that's uh, one we've heard about in the past where they used to make sort of polenta style dishes from millet flour before polenta was a thing. Oh, but anyway, that's, uh, I digress already. We're only just starting yeah, the episode. Yeah, you've already got me drooling about polenta. So bring <laughs> me back to couscous. So yeah, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the couscous as a feature dish, just specifically about couscous and its history and some crazy side stories about it as well. So uh, the typical thing with couscous is it's boiled or steamed. And we'll explain sort of the difference of how that works as we go through because it's actually quite technical. And it makes up an essential part of North African, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cuisine. And of course, now it's popular all over the world. Yeah. Because it's awesome. Yeah, it's delicious and it's good for you. 
There you go. Uh, the exact details of what couscous is, though, is actually way more complicated than that basic introduction. So that's also something we're going to cover in depth. It's quite surprising. We went down a massive rabbit hole on this one. Uh, it's yeah, not you just thought wheat. this would be like a 10-minute yeah. quickie episode, and then, oh, wait, it's a whole thing. But what we do know is it's so good they named it twice. Uh, Stealing that joke from Pineapple Express. Yep. <laughs> Apparently they did it first. Sorry, had to get in the, the dodgy joke at the start. All right, all right let's, let's talk about the ancient origins first. I think that's a good place to start. And then yep. we'll get into like the different types of couscous that you can find around the world and that sort of thing. So the earliest origin of domesticated wheat. So I'm actually going back because, of course, this is a wheat product. So actually yeah. figuring out the origin, let's look at wheat first, just very quickly. Uh, it's believed to be in the Middle East and the Nile Valley of Egypt, sort of that area. Mm-hmm. It was like the fertile belt at that time. And they started domesticating it back probably in 9600 BC. This was. Wow, sir. I mean, wheat formed one of those crops that was really part of the difference between being hunter gatherers and being a, an yeah. agrarian society. And, yeah, and people started down. like actually growing wheat, which means they had to take care of it, which means they could no longer just move from location. They were no longer nomadic. And so this is where the beginning of like townships and 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 us staying in one place and cultivating that one place really began was with wheat yeah it was one of the most important products that actually changed us into agricultural societies uh this of course spread this sort of uh the the cultivation of wheat spread through europe the rest of the mediterranean and northwest africa over the next few thousand years and actually durham wheat specifically which is the one i said is the most famous one for making couscous these days uh, it might have actually become a cultivated crop around 7000 bc because this is one of the first artificial selection sort of crops so they chose like a type of wheat that was better and easier for them to use grew better just was easier to take care of. Well, it's actually, like having that pot plant in the corner that you know you can't kill. <laughs> yeah. No matter how you are at growing plants, you know that one's good. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what happened. The crazy thing is the reason they reckon they selected this exact type of wheat was because it is one of the few wild types of wheat that was free threshing. As in, like, you can literally just bash the head of the wheat against something and the seeds fall out. Easy. Whereas other ones, you'd have to like try and get the seeds out of the, the ear of the, the wheat. So this one was like a really easy one to do. So they sort of cultivated this and selectively bred it. I don't know why they call one. it ear because the thought of anything coming out of anything's ear is gross. <laughs> I've got no idea. Fortunately, <laughs> this wheat is not waxy, so no, it's not a big deal. <laughs> so, of course, from this point around 7000 BC and before... Humans were definitely experimenting with ways to make use of wheat in order to make food, of course. Uh, We don't know exactly what the earliest type of food would have been, because that's a bit difficult to prove, 9600 BC. Yeah. But uh, the earliest evidence of actually milling wheat down to make flour is from 6000 BC. Though flour could easily have been made from that without using a millstone, people could have just ground it up on a plate with some stones or something. I mean, like, you don't have to have millstones to make flour. But prior to flour, I mean, conjecture would suggest that they could have just boiled the wheat grains, literally just boiled it and eaten it. Yeah, that would have made sense. I mean, it's not exactly the tastiest thing, but like crack it, boil it, eat it. Well, let's, let's just say there wasn't a lot of Michelin stars getting around <laughs> for, for that <laughs> <No>. period. <laughs> oh, they boiled this extra special this time. Mm, yes, this boiling process has been particularly wonderful. I will leave them a very good review on my cave wall. Now let's... Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the exact origin date of couscous for this reason is sort of unknown because it's made from durum wheat. Basically, you grind the wheat and eventually you get couscous. And I'm going to explain that process a bit more as we go further. But just because we're saying that you have to have this durum wheat or it could be another type of wheat, but you have to have ground it in some way to get the couscous. Yeah. So it's not just you found wheat in a field and made couscous. So probably sometime around 6000 BC is my guess. No one actually really knows at all. No one has got a definite date on that. But if they were milling the wheat, then couscous is a possibility. But there is actually more to the process of couscous than just milling the wheat. So we're going to get into that. So um, for the oldest written reference, we're looking at... There's a book by Lucie Bolens, a French author. It's called The Surprising Apparition of Couscous in Medieval Andalusia, which is the south of Spain. So it's a very random book. It's a very specific book title. It's a very surprising book title. But she estimates that the Berber people from North Africa, which is the Northwest Africa specifically, is the area around Libya, Algeria, Morocco, and the Sahara Desert, Northern Sahara Desert. Yeah. That's the area where they've like historically been based, but they were nomadic, so they moved around. But yeah, those areas where they were living. Um her estimate is that they were preparing couscous as early as 238 BC. That's quite a big difference between 6000 BC and 238. Yeah, that's quite a few. And it will become clear years. as we move on why it might be that long before couscous actually became a thing. But she's the one with the most sort of optimistic ancient prediction. Other authors are being a little bit more conservative. And Charles Perry, in his book, Couscous and Its Cousins... <laughs> <laughs> with these authors with these titles Fantastic. Um, he believed it may not have been a part of Berber food culture until the Zirid dynasty and the rise of the Al-Muhadin dynasty between the 11th and 13th century so oh, that's those ones. AD oh yes those classic <laughs> dynasties classic that we know all dynasties. about actually they were sort of important because they were like the rise of Berber culture being the stronger culture in that part of Africa rather than other cultures that were sort of in charge of things. So, yeah, he thinks that maybe this didn't come until then. And it sort of comes down to the fact that there's not really any written references. Which is always the problem when things that are this old. Like, you only really have a stronghold on the history of things once people actually started notating and writing all this information down. Otherwise, it's just, it's all conjecture before that. And it's crazy because obviously the Roman Empire were in and out of North Africa and the Greeks would have been in and out of North Africa and they never wrote about this dish. And they were very good at they writing stuff everything. down. They were very, very good at that. Everything. So, I mean, that's one other reason why you can go, well, if they never mentioned it, they never had it. Yeah. So, I mean, what the conjecture is from the first author I mentioned, uh, Lucy Bolens, is it seems to be more of the like, well, they were probably making this, but because they were nomadic tribes in the desert, the Romans weren't really hanging out with them. There's no reason that any of this stuff would have been written down. So it's not until the 11th to 13th century, roughly, where the Berbers actually moved into the southern Mediterranean, into the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain, south of Spain. Because that was under Moorish rule at the time in the 13th century. And also, like, if you've ever been to that part of the world, it is, like, crazy how stupidly close it is. Yeah. Like, you don't actually realize until you visit there that you're like, oh, hey, Africa. Like, it's really 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 close so the combination of cultures and everything and as you said it was under moorish rule at that time anyway it's it's no big surprise yeah i mean gibraltar straits the gibraltar point at the south of spain from there to africa is like you can see it oh for it's sure. right there so yep. it's like it's like 20 something miles or something yeah across. wave a flag and someone will see it yeah yeah so it's not, not hard a particularly these- big flag either like 
Yeah. No, exactly. Not hard for culture to transmit across. And because the Moors were in charge and the Moors were from North Africa, we talk about them a lot in a lot of the previous episodes we've done recently, actually, the Moors are featured. Uh, it was a, a big cultural exchange by them taking over the south of Spain and uh, parts of central Spain as well and Portugal. But because the Berber dynasties started to actually become a thing or dynasties. For, yeah. Uh, American listeners. Once again, they started to become like little civilizations and that they weren't just these nomadic families. They became a township. Yeah. Well, they were actually sort of taking some power away from the Arabic and Moorish rulers. Mm. And so some of these uh, Berber leaders moved into the Iberian Peninsula, into Spain, and that meant they brought their own traditional foods that hadn't necessarily been as popular because they'd been within their community. So it wasn't necessarily something that the rest of North Africa was just eating. This was like their cultural food that they were eating. Yeah. So once they brought that into the south of Spain, then there are these two Arab cookbooks that were written in the 13th century. One is the anonymous book called Kitab al-Hatabish. Probably pronounced very wrong, sorry. I, feel, I thought it sounded believable, though. Yeah. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> it's not too bad, is yeah. it? And uh, another one is called Fadalat al-Jawan. Not and- so good. Sorry, but that one, actually, I think we mentioned that in our uh, Madrid episode. It's the same cookbook that has the history of like a, a dish similar to cocido. Exactly. It's like a chickpea based stew with meats. That one is also an important recipe book that mentions couscous as a specific dish. So that's very cool. That's like the oldest written reference actually from the 13th century. Yeah. So the summary here is they could have had couscous anytime from like 6000 BC pretty much. But the first written reference isn't until the 13th century. All right. So, well, it was obviously quite established by the time it was yeah. actually put into this recipe book. So, all right. Yeah, because they had to bring it over from North Africa. And pretty much everyone agrees it came from North Africa. They didn't invent it in Spain. Uh, so, also, couscous is very popular in the Middle East. And although some believe that it spread there from North Africa, there's actually, because uh, of course, North Africa is where the Berbers were. There's also an alternative theory that it was because it went from North Africa to Spain. And then once the Moorish period ended, people were still eating couscous in in Spain. And they had this whole thing where it switched back to Christianity and all of the Jews that had been living there, the Sephardic Jews, which is something else we talked about in the Madrid episode. Those Sephardic Jews then, when they migrated back towards the Middle East, they took couscous with them that way rather than coming through North Africa. However, I'm not. I'm not really into no, this but that's, theory. It's an interesting story. It's an interesting possibility. It went through Spain first and then to the Middle East because there's not really like loads of written evidence that it was in the Middle East and, yeah, in the 13th century. Well, that's anything. what I was going to say. There's no particular story that says that it maybe like popped up at the same time in the Middle East. It very much is something that it appears that started in Africa and eventually migrated over. Yeah, there's absolutely no evidence suggesting that couscous was being made in other places Ooh, prior. That seems scandalous. Yeah, it's all North African, apparently, although there is one random theory. So this is the only other random theory that tries to object to this, is that, well, it still came from North Africa, but Muslim rule moved into Sicily. And we talked about that in the Rome episode, that actually Sicily, around about the 9th century, was under Muslim rule. And so they brought food from North Africa because of that. And actually, that couscous had already moved into Sicily in the 9th century, long before the 13th century, where it hit Spain. Perhaps. So, all of this is just conjecture based on the idea that people from North Africa had moved into those regions and that couscous was probably a thing by that point. Yeah. Probably. So, 
And the thing, and as I said before, that you have to realize that like North Africa is not as far away from Europe as no. one would assume. It seems like Africa just seems like it's so far away, but it, it really isn't that far. So for these places to have had this mix of cultures and food is, is not actually a big surprise. Mediterranean and North Africa were trading constantly since ancient times. Yeah. And the Greeks and Phoenicians were, yeah, they were all trading. So, all right. So the summary is that no one really has any evidence, classic, mm-hmm. but probably at least from the 13th century from Moorish cookbooks sort of suggest it came from North Africa to there. And of course, because it's such a major food of the Berber people anyway, it, it seems like there's no other evidence to contradict that it would have originally come from there. Okay. So, I mean, hopefully, because my goal with this episode was we're going to do a Berber cuisine episode, and then it hasn't happened because couscous is so incredibly crazy. Uh, Hopefully, we'll head back and talk about Berber cuisine in a future episode in a few months' time or something. And then we can look at some of the other dishes. But yeah, couscous just is pretty crazy. And the bit that is really crazy is what's coming up. So, right now, we've done like the this is some history stuff. But the actual story of what couscous is, is the thing that fascinated me way more incredibly confusing and ultimately very surprising it's not what you think it's going to be so what is this dish <laughs> it's just couscous you thought it was going to be simple no, you buy it in a packet you put some water in it you stir it for 20 minutes Bada boom. oh no oh no meg <laughs> That's not couscous at all. I know. I've been to Morocco. I know. <laughs> all of the people who know I've been to Morocco are like, oh, Meg, how could you say such a thing? So, the first thing I need to say, though, is a little bit of a disclaimer. The internet really is full of so many contradictions. So, it took me a lot of time to research this because people just make assumptions about what couscous is and they just write it on their blogs and stuff. And even on some relatively large like media sites... They just write stuff that Everyone they think must be true. a good cut and paste. Yep, cut and paste. Oh, it's this, that's it. Why bother doing any more research? So, yeah, I've worked really hard to try and pick out the ones that actually make sense and the ones that don't make sense. And so we're going to go with the stuff that hopefully completely makes sense and is the genuine story of couscous. So what actually is couscous? It is a partially ground grain. So unlike flour, of course, which is very finely ground, mm-hmm. uh, couscous is very coarsely ground. As I said before at the start, it's commonly made from durum wheat, though it can be made from anything else, uh, anything similar, barley, millet, etc. It's the same type of hard wheat, the durum wheat that you use to make semolina and semolina flour, which is the stuff that you use to make pasta and pizza as well. So it's very popular. Like a hearty, Lots of protein. Yeah. Because it's a high gluten flour. But the confusion really starts right from now. Before I've even started really explaining this, it already gets confusing. Oh, good. Semolina is a coarsely ground durum wheat, but so is couscous. So this is confusing, right? So what's the difference between this and other coarsely ground wheat products like, say, bulgur wheat? I mean, I'm going to say size. (laughs) Like the amount of grinding. Size is definitely a factor, but you would be wrong in saying that size is the only difference between these products. So, yeah, it gets even more confusing because if you look on the internet, you will find a lot of people saying that couscous is a pasta, not a grain. Well, I mean, yeah, it all comes from the same plant and it's just different levels wow. of grinding this. So I can see how they would come up with that. But you don't grind wheat to make pasta. You grind wheat to make flour and then you make pasta. That is true. See, this is why I'm like, what couscous is 
couscous is pasta. All right. But I'm going to try and explain the differences. I mean. No, I agree. As you said, yeah, you grind wheat to make flour and from flour you make pasta. I think it it is a second cousin. You'll see. You'll see. Okay. Good. It's good that you're uh, you're putting down some predictions, putting some bets down. Yep. So we'll see how right you are. Yeah, I mean, like a pasta, you make with semolina and a mix of semolina flour and semolina and water to make a dough, and then you make pasta. So you know that's that's pasta. Let's look a bit more at couscous because this is so confusing. The only way that I could really figure out how to explain this so that we could understand the difference properly is to actually give a quick rundown on what the flour making and milling process is about. Because actually, I was really surprised when I started digging into this. This is way more complicated. Because surely you think, oh, you know, they grind up wheat and then you get flour, right? Yeah, I'm wondering how this is going to be interesting, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) This is surprisingly... Because, I mean, wheat is such a basis of almost everything. Like, so so many cultures. Yeah. So much stuff and everything. It all comes down to how you grind a bit of a seed. Yeah. That is, and that has been the basis of culture for 10,000 years. And it's an important thing to look at as people that consume this stuff because we all know what wheat looks like and we all know what the final product looks like, but we've got no freaking idea what happens in between. Yeah. I like pizza. And yeah. now we're going to find out something about where that sort of stuff comes from. All right. So the modern milling process is very effective at actually separating the constituent parts of every single grain of wheat. So. Quickly, very quick rundown of what the constituent parts are. For simplicity, I've actually turned this to a really crude analogy, uh, looking at a grain of wheat as if it was an egg. So this is like a wheat egg. All right. Okay, so we've got like a yolk, a white, and a shell. So the wheat germ is equivalent to the egg yolk, uh, except the germ is way smaller relative to the size of an egg yolk that it would be in an egg. The wheat germ is actually only about 3% of an entire grain of wheat. So it's tiny, but it's the same as the yolk. So it's like the baby, the inner as it were. Bit. Very high in protein, like 23%. Uh, The endosperm, great name. Well done, wheat people. (laughs) The endosperm, which is the equivalent of the egg white, makes up 83% of the grain. It's much lower in protein, around 7 to 10%, which is still fine for making a cake or whatever. It's a decent amount of of gluten, decent amount of protein. And the final part, the eggshell equivalent is the bran. I'm sure everyone's heard of bran flakes and bran. Everyone knows bran's good for you. Keeps you regular. Lots of fiber. And that makes up just 14%. So most of the egg, the egg, the wheat egg is made up of the endosperm part, the egg white part in the middle, which is such a stupid name. Awesome. Um, (laughs) So yeah, and the eggshell, the brand part is about 16% protein. So everything else apart from the main part is more high in protein. So, you know, this is a thing. So when whole wheat grain is first ground, these constituent parts separate out and they can be filtered. So, you know, they, that's what the production process does Just in modern production. Apart, yeah. they, they break up each piece of the whole wheat and they separate them. Processed white flour is made up entirely from the endosperm. And that's the egg white part. So this is why... So that's like 83% of the entire seed. So that's why you get a lot of flour out of each seed. And then you've got all this other stuff left over. And but not as as uh, nutritious as the rest of the plant. No, you don't have all Which that is extra- why white bread is not fantastic. No, you don't have all the extra fiber. It's lower in protein, et cetera, et cetera. But you can break these pieces down, the endosperm, it, different parts, like the inner part of the endosperm grind, grinds down to finer flour. You can stop saying endosperm. Just, just the, call it like ES. The, the, <laughs> the inner part of the ES grinds down to 
<laughs> it grinds down to a finer flour quite easily. That could be ground really, really fine. The outer part, not quite as much, but I mean, it still grinds down a lot. So, it's at this stage where they first break up and actually grind the, the wheat grain that you get semolina. It's made entirely from the ES. They separate the germ and the bran away. And they just have like a coarse, very coarse first grinding of the seeds. And yeah. they separate out all of the other stuff from the outside. And they sieve that out and then you've got semolina. And that's it. So this hasn't been ground down to a fine flour. It's this really coarse grinding of the white of the seed. Okay. Pretty much. Now, couscous is made from semolina, as I think I mentioned before. So that's like, that's the constituent part. That's what you've got. It's coarse ground wheat with all of the bran and stuff removed. Now, the traditional handmade version of making couscous that is still done in Berber households is to sprinkle raw semolina and raw semolina flour, so the finer ground stuff. You actually sprinkle the flour on top of the coarse ground semolina. You add salt water, so a bit of salt, bit of water, and then you roll that by hand with your palms. And effectively, what you're doing is you're binding the flour, the, gr- the ground flour, to the rough coarse flour to make little grains. And this is how you're making couscous. So couscous is not a finished product when it's ground out of the wheat. You actually roll flour onto coarse grains to make them slightly bigger and turn them into couscous. Weird, right? Okay. Why does this even work and not turn into like a big dough? Who just... That's what I was thinking. One, why is this not a big dough? And two, who discovered this? They obviously just were bored and they sat in their house adding things together and rolling them around and went, oh, this turns into grains. That's so weird. Because, yeah, I would think, as you said, with the things that it's like salt water and the two different types of grain. That it would just turn, that into, it just a turn into a dough. But it seems like. I thought you were going to be like, and then they put it through a machine and it comes out as couscous. But no, it's. Think about it. When you make a pasta dough or a pizza dough, you put a load of flour in a bowl with water and then you push it together and press it and push it into a ball. Whereas this, they have it like laid out on a, like, a, like a tray or whatever. Yeah. And they roll it. They roll their hands over it back and forward. So it's basically like if you have a little bit of something on a bench and you just roll your hand on top of it backwards and forward, it yeah. eventually rolls into a ball, right? Because that's yeah. just how physics seems to work. The ball is the, like, the standard thing that things want to turn into. Yeah. And that's it. That's what they're actually doing. Wow. So crazy, right? So the semolina flour mini tiny balls that are making up the couscous, they're then steamed for 30 minutes at a time. And in between each steaming, they rinse them with cold water to cool them down. They break up the lumps again to make sure they don't turn into a big lumpy mess. Yeah. And they just keep doing that. And... The cook and then handle process happens like multiple times. And the final product made from the semolina and semolina, fra- uh, semolina flour is couscous. So this is where the biggest confusion lies. And this is the thing that actually took me ages to realize, oh, that's what's going on. It's like the aha moment is couscous is cooked semolina and flour. Couscous is not a raw product. That is not the thing you buy in the supermarket. That is not a raw product. That is a finished product that has been made into couscous. So, yeah, when you go to the supermarket, you're buying semolina that's already been processed, it's been steamed, it's been turned into couscous, then it's been re-dried and put in packaging so you can then pour some water on it and have it five minutes later. Couscous in a supermarket is a finished product that you rehydrate. So, couscous is, is mac and cheese. <laughs> is it? 
Like so, so, like it's a packaged thing. Yeah, it's a packaged thinnest thing that you just pour water on and then it's cooked. Exactly. So it's like mac and cheese. Yeah, it's been pre-made. So that's the difference. Is if you're buying couscous, is the dish. It's not the raw product. The raw product is semolina. Whoa. Okay. Mind blown slightly. So yeah, everybody thinks that couscous is this thing that you just go in the supermarket like you'd buy rice. Oh, yeah. I'll just buy some rice, which I is a product. I thought couscous was a grain. Yeah. You just go and buy it. It comes from wheat. It's ground out of wheat and you just buy it and then you pour water on it and it's cooked. No, they've pre-cooked it. They've changed the flour and the semolina into a finished product that's been cooked and then you just rehydrate it. That's all we're doing. That's why it takes five minutes to cook. But when we made it in Morocco, it took us an hour and a half to make it because- well, they've we refined to, the art of making couscous Well, there. no, they have to steam it because it's raw flour. If you, just, if you just put the raw flour in the water for a couple of minutes, it obviously doesn't work as well or something. I don't, I don't really understand that part of it exactly, but this is the crazy thing. So, yeah, <laughs> we, would, yeah we did a cooking class in Essaouira and we thought we were just making couscous and we had no idea why it was taking like two hours, hour and a half, two hours yeah, to make couscous. It, it literally was like a lot of steaming. So there was yeah. like the, the main meat and vegetable products that wanted to be mixed with like, th- that would be like the tagine sort of mix on top was underneath it. And so all of the flavors of the meat that we were cooking was infusing in the couscous and you, and you had to regularly get in there with your hands and continuously break it up. And uh, Kadisha was getting in there and she obviously had like just these cook's hands because we were like, ah, it burns. And she's like, ah, bosses. <laughs> and so, but just continuously breaking it up um, and keeping it in those particles. So I guess that's the thing of making sure it doesn't bind and doesn't become a ball of a ball splodge. Of, yeah, so, yeah. Which is why they do it. And then you do, after a couple of hours, you know, you do get this incredibly infused, soft, fluffy. Every couscous. grain is individual. Nothing Every sticks grain is together. individual. Yeah, it's yeah. Unless you've experienced true Moroccan or even like North African couscous, you have like it's just so good and proper homemade. Because sometimes homemade, in, yeah. in the restaurants, they literally have made this massive batch and then they reheat no, it. No, sadly, we we did have a bit of an issue in Morocco with some restaurants. Like, you know, Moroccan food does take a while to actually cook. So, if you want fast turnover food in a restaurant, you're going to get reheated stuff. It's just simple as that. Yeah. So, it's, so, you really do need to have a cooking class or do a food tour and just really get into the homes and find out how they actually are making these authentically. And that's when you get the true, true flavors of this cuisine. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that was it. That's the crazy process of making couscous. Wow. It's completely different from what I thought it was going to be. and had no idea. So, let's look at the difference between this and other wheat products like bulgur. Because, obviously, bulgur is a grain that you boil and uh, it comes from wheat. Yeah, definitely. So and also, bulgur is only something that's come onto my radar recently. Uh, it wasn't something that I really grew up with. Once again, something I, would, I didn't really grow up with. And since hitting, well, actually, it was Bulgaria. <laughs> Even though the word Bulgar has know, nothing has, to do with Bulgaria at all. Got to just point that out. That's a very weird coincidence. But that's where I actually became to know this as like another grain that you can have. Yeah. And actually, Bulgar is probably one of the oldest grains that has ever been cooked and eaten. Like a, How did I know? A product product rather than just... Yeah. I don't grow up with this. Something that's made. Now, this is crazy. So, I, I mean, I explained, once again, just for summary, the couscous, 
is semolina and flour added together, rolled to make those little balls, rolled on a flat sheet, yep. and then steamed until it's cooked and it's all separate little tiny, tiny, tiny balls. Okay, so how now, are they doing bulgur? Bulgur, for anyone who hasn't really had bulgur, because as we said, it's not like massively popular in all parts of the world, very popular in the Mediterranean and Middle East. I think you're finding it a lot more in like your agro yeah. organic stores and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. But not it? everyone's had it. No. I mean, it's about the size of rice-ish. A little bit different. It's a, little a bit chunkier more. grain. You can get fine ones and you can get chunky ones. Yeah. The chunky ones are about the size of short grain rice and the fine ones are getting closer to couscous. Yeah. So obviously this seems like, well, hang on, is this something a bit similar to couscous? No. No, it is not. Uh, once again, though, bulgur is normally made from durum wheat. Of course, it can be made from any other type of grain as well. Something I didn't mention before, but I should mention right now, is uh, durum is actually the Latin word for hard. So all this means is it's hard wheat. And this is supposed to be something to do with the higher gluten content. But that's all it means. So durum wheat just means hard wheat. And yeah, unlike soft wheat, which has a much softer flour because it's lower in gluten. So yeah. It is interesting so, because you almost look at packets of pasta in the in the in the aisle at the supermarket and you see that it's like with durum wheat and you're like, ooh, it's, ooh must ooh. be fancy. It's like, <laughs> it's nope. like no it's like this is just hard wheat <laughs> that they've had for like eight thousand years now. I've seen it on so many packets and not really known what it meant. I'm like, ooh, durum wheat, that must be special. <laughs> Look, it's in a cardboard box too. Oh, this is special pasta. <laughs> it's nope. just it's good high gluten flour. So that's all it means. It makes a, it makes a hard flour like even sometimes you talk about bread flour as like hard flour and like cake flour as like soft flour. Yeah. And it's actually due with the gluten content. So that's it really. Durham wheat has a higher gluten that's content. That's a good than way to flour. explain the two because you know the difference between a bread dough and yeah. a and a cake mix. Like you you can tell the difference between that and that's a good example of like the difference between the flours, yeah. So here's the crazy thing as to why bulgur is completely different. Uh, the bulgur is actually whole wheat grains, fully unground, nothing, like the whole thing with the bran on the outside and everything. Oh. They parboil them. So yep. they actually cook the grains before any grinding takes place. After cooking them, they dry them out. And then instead of actually grinding them, which would turn them into a sort of flour, they remove some of the bran from the outside. And then all of the remaining grains are just cracked. So they're not ground into any sort of powder. They're just cracked, just which is why the the bits can be quite large. Yeah. And then they can filter them and sieve them so that you've got the really big bits and that's the coarse bulgur and you've got the thinner bits that came out from the middle of the ES because I'm not allowed to say endosperm. Uh, so that's the final. <laughs> you just said it. I said it. Anyway, screw you. I'll say what I want. <laughs> it's a technical word. It's not rude. It's just so... <laughs> no. Who knew that your bread was full of endosperm? Don't. Oh, Don't even. Don't ruin this for me. I'm a carb fanatic. Don't ruin this. But, um, yeah, so supposedly some of the, the germ and the bran are also included because they've cooked the seed. I guess it's sort of like if you boil an egg, it becomes more of a thing together and it's harder to separate. And when you crack it, parts of both can be yeah. included. Apparently, that's the process. I'm not a miller. I, I've, I don't know, but that's what, after doing a lot of research on this, apparently that's exactly how that works. So it's got more actual goodness in it than couscous because it's not just the middle white part of the seed. No, it's, it's got, got the bran, bran and, stuff. and the germ. I the told germ you especially. it was good for me. Yeah, it's you're just like, better. you're addicted to carbs. And I was like, no, bulgur is fantastic. Bulgur is definitely a healthy, higher fiber, higher good protein sort of. Yeah, it's a definitely a good thing to, to eat. Good, good choice. 
All right. Now, I alluded earlier and mentioned that couscous is considered by many to be a pasta. Yes. And not a grain. You, yeah, and now, did. of course, you can probably see why maybe it's a pasta because you're actually mixing Cousins. flour and water together to make this little dough. Cousins. So, yeah. Now, pasta, let's do a little bit of definition work so we can sort this all out. Pasta is typically made with finely ground semolina or double-O uh, durum flour, so like really finely ground, nice hard flour from durum, or a mix of the durum flour with uh, the coarser semolina. So actually, this gives a bit more texture to your pasta if you don't just use the finely ground flour, but you add some semolina because of that coarseness. Apparently, this is a good thing. I didn't even know that until I researched this episode. Yeah. I've been, making, I've been like, oh, everyone says use double-O flour to make your pasta. It's the best. But apparently, if you add some coarse grain uh, semolina into the mix as well, that can create some really good pasta. Nice. So there you go. Some more rustic pasta is going to be tasty. Something to consider. Also have a look for that on your pasta packets in the supermarket. Yes. So pasta, at least the pasta that's made without eggs, is just flour and water, which is then rolled out in a dough or turned into some sort of shapes, and then it's boiled. So it does bear some resemblance to couscous in that sense. You've mixed up some dough and then you boil it. Yeah. Well, steam it, boil it, whatever. You use water to cook it. Supposedly, when the semolina is hydrated, different elements of the flour and semolina together, they, they actually fuse. That's what helps to make all the individual little granules in couscous, as we talked about a little bit earlier on. So, yeah, is that tiny bits of pasta? Because you're fusing bits of the flour together with water to make a very, very tiny pasta. Is that pasta? What do you think? Oh, I, I, I really don't know. No. So, I mean, like, instant couscous, for example, is semolina and flour mixed with water, then cooked with water, then air-dried, and then sold so you can boil it at home to finish it. Yeah. Sounds somewhat similar to pasta. How often do they add eggs to make pasta? Uh, I mean, egg pasta is a different type of pasta. It's okay. all pasta, but adding eggs is a type of pasta. You don't have to add eggs to make pasta. That's like pasta. a Northern Italy thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, you can just use water. You really don't have to add eggs. So, yeah, as we've seen in a lot of previous episodes, sometimes the reason these arguments occur is because people seem to have different dictionary definitions of what something is. So I thought I'd take a look at a few of the different definitions so we can try and make a decision okay. whether couscous is pasta or not. So here is a few definitions for what pasta is. A food made of flour, water, and sometimes egg, which is formed into a variety of shapes that are hard when dry and soft when cooked. That's the Cambridge Dictionary definition. So that would include couscous, right? That's it hard just when says, dry and soft when cooked. Yeah, made with flour and water. Hard when dry, soft when cooked. All right, that's a very basic definition. That would definitely include couscous. All right, let's look at another couple of definitions. Pasta is a type of food made from a mixture of flour, eggs, and water that is formed into different shapes and then boiled. Well, couscous is sort of formed into shapes, right? Because it's formed into little balls. Yeah. And it's made from a mix of flour. Well, the eggs is optional, of course. But water. So that also so sort of includes couscous. Tiny, yeah. Because you are forming something out of flour and water. Uh, okay, next one. Oxford English Dictionary. A dish originally from Italy. So they're being very specific on this one, apparently. Uh, consisting of dough made with durum wheat and water 
extruded, which means like forced into a shape using some sort of implement machinery, or stamped into various shapes and typically cooked in boiling water. So that wouldn't necessarily include couscous. I mean, obviously, it's not from Italy. That is a very weird definition. Yeah, but that's, that's the Oxford definition. So, I don't know. Yeah, it hasn't been extruded or stamped into shapes. But when you think about most pastas, you are cutting them or using a, some sort of press to press them into a shape with ravioli or something. If you've ever made pasta, uh, you know, in Italy it, it, or anywhere at all, like when you roll it out and then you roll out this one big dough and then that dough can be made into different shapes depending on how you decide to cut it. So, yeah, that definitely then makes different types of pastas where, yes, you do, from what you were saying with the couscous, you roll it, but not in a way you roll dough. No, you're rolling individual little balls. It doesn't seem like you're you're not post-shaping the stuff out of the wheat paste. No, it just is what it is. Yeah, you're not turning it into a a thing. Because with with pasta dough, then you turn it in, it's like, oh, we're making this sort of pasta now. Yeah. So I will use this tool to- Make it this. Yeah. And of course, with like machine production, they push the dough through some sort of machine to extrude yeah. a shape and then they dry it and, or whatever. So, yeah. It, yeah. This is why I'm like, really? Cousins. Is, yeah. Cousins. I don't really see they're quite the same. I'm back to cousins. Yeah. I mean, every ounce of my being tells me that they're cousins and not that couscous is pasta. So, but it sort of fits all of those definitions, just, which is why I can see why people are saying it's pasta. Health-wise, when everyone's like, eat couscous because it's better for you, it's the healthy choice. It's, it's the like, same. It's the same. <laughs> eat bulgur because that's healthier <laughs> for you. This is the same. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, health food stores around the world. Couscous is the same as eating a bowl of pasta. So, Yeah. I, every ounce of my being is saying, no, this is a cousin. This is not the same product. Because with every type of pasta that I can possibly think of, the flour is hydrated to make a dough, and then it's cut into some sort of shapes. Whether they're little shapes, big shapes, doesn't matter. Or it's extruded into shapes. It's not that the flour is individually molded into grains. No. So this seems like a different thing. Um, also, I mean, the water is cold when you're making pasta dough, uh, and then you've just made this dough, you've dried it out, and you sell it. Whereas with couscous, you are actually cooking the couscous before then drying it. And yeah. then you sell it. So I'm like, it's like a different process that's, that's as well. That's quite different. Yeah, that's very I, different. Yeah, it's like got an extra stage of process before it. Whereas the pasta is like, okay, we've made the dough, we've cut the shapes, we dry it, we sell it. Yeah, if someone sold you cooked pasta that they then dried out, you'd be like, dude. Yeah, we cooked this, we boiled this. It's like, no, you, no. you boil it at the end. Yeah. So this is, yeah. I mean, this is so confusing. If it's not in the pasta family, though, what family is it in? Wheat. Just wheat. So let's blow a few more minds. So even more confusing, if it wasn't confusing enough already, is Israeli couscous. I love Israeli couscous. It's my favorite. Now, do you? Why don't? Don't ruin this (laughs) for me. Don't. (laughs) I really love it. Don't ruin it. So there's something that I know you love, Israeli couscous. Pearl couscous is another name that we hear used for this. However, Israeli couscous and pearl couscous are not the same. No? Nope. You think they're the same thing? They are not the same thing. Why? Because they're a different shaped ball? These are two different products. 
What? Yep. I told you the couscous story was going to get crazy. It just keeps getting crazy. So, pearl couscous actually refers to Lebanese couscous, which is much bigger than Israeli couscous. Yeah, but I, I actually knew that they were bigger in size, but I figured it was the same thing, just made different ways. Like, Well, actually, pearl couscous is sort of about the same size as a dried chickpea. Huge. Oh, yeah. Much bigger than the Israeli couscous that you like. But that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. So it's really, really big balls. The Lebanese pearl couscous is called Mogharaba or Moghat. Mograbia. 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 I can't pronounce this one. <laughs> All this of is those. not easy. But if you want to figure out how to pronounce it yourself, or at least how it's spelt, then do head to the show notes for this episode, foodfuntravel.com slash couscous podcast. And that's got everything we talk about in that article as well. So this one is like couscous in the fact that it is rolled semolina. Or sometimes they actually use cracked wheat, so like bulgur. Oh, yeah. Something similar to bulgur, rolled with flour. So it's the same process. You ah. add flour to it and you keep rolling it and adding flour and it turns into bigger and bigger balls. So very much the same as couscous, but a much a larger version. Now, the word mogharabia in Arabic means from the countries of Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. That's Specific- like the actual meaning. Yeah, yeah. Specifically, that's what it means. Oh, wow. Because that word refers to the region rather than the country. So, I mean, that's just like a translation to make it make sense. Uh, and yeah, so that's the Lebanese couscous. So, that, that gives quite a specific, like, historic suggestion that this is from that area. Yeah. It's likely this style came to Lebanon and around the Syria and Palestinian regions from North African pilgrims that traveled to Mecca. And they would have brought this food production method with them so mm-hmm. they could make food while they traveled. Obviously, durum wheat and semolina are available around the entire region. So, as a product they could have found locally and they would have made their couscous as they traveled. Why not? But also, if they dried it out, they can travel with it. Yeah. Or they could travel with it. Yeah. Or they could make it if they'd run out. They could make it wherever they were. So, this is handy. So, yeah. I did talk earlier about the Sephardic Jews maybe bringing it from Spain through back to the Middle East. But it seems more likely to me... Because of that name, the name is like the, the couscous that came yeah. from the countries of Morocco, Yeah, it's not Tunisia. the couscous that came from Spain. No. Nah. It's sort of, and it's, it's Muslim countries. So, this is the thing, like the Jews moved back to Israel, but this name and this product and this style of making the product are all in the Muslim countries around Israel, mm. not in Israel specifically. So, it just seems to make way more sense that it was people traveling from North Africa visiting than the... Jewish culture just affected it from Israel somehow. Because why not? It's tasty. I mean, it's possible either way, but it just all adds up to be, it's come from North Africa. Yeah. And actually, in North Africa, there is a very similar large couscous. So instead of couscous, they have this berkukes, or berkukes, berkukes. The literal translation of this word means coarse couscous. So it's like berkus, 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 or berkukes. Yeah, so it's like large couscous. And this could have actually been something that had been going on in North Africa for ages. I mean, I don't have specific history on it. I can't find it. But it's just like, oh, hang on, we're making couscous. Hey, let's add more flour and more stuff and let's, let's make keep big going ones. with this. And so this is an actual thing in North Africa as well. Uh, Algeria, especially, very popular there today. So yeah, but the name probably changed. So this large couscous ended up in the Middle East, and the name was changed to be like, oh, where did this come from? Oh, it came from North Africa, like Libya area and stuff. Yeah. So that's that. So it's crazy. 
But now in Palestine, they make yet another variation of couscous. Well, they're not going to call it Israeli couscous, are they? No, they are not. <laughs> Maftul is the name in Palestine, which is slightly smaller than the Lebanese pearl couscous. And it's supposedly normally made from bulgur rather than semolina. And the flour is added and they roll it in the same way. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Now let's get back to Israeli couscous so we can try and connect these things together. This one is called petitim. And it comes in smaller sizes than the versions I just mentioned. So it's smaller than pearl couscous by quite a long way. Uh, it also has a completely alternative origin story that has nothing to do with North Africa at all. And actually, Israeli couscous may have only started its existence in the 1950s. Uh, it's got nothing to do with ancient Berber cuisine at all. I thought you were going to try and tell me that, like, you know, Jesus rose from the dead and brought it with him. <laughs> nope. I'm back! And I brought some couscous. Are you hungry? <laughs> Bread and fishes? No, nope. I got something better. The new thing. We're going to have to edit Israeli this couscous. <laughs> Too dark. Not allowed. Maybe. I don't know. See how you feel when you're editing. <laughs> All right. So, uh, understanding the origin of Israeli couscous will also help to explain why it's not pearl couscous. So, the internet just like you yourself, is full of this whole bunch of people confusing the two and going like, Israeli couscous, pearl couscous is the same. Yeah. It's like, big couscous. It's like, nope, two different things. Um, so yeah, that makes it all a bit confusing. But unlike all the other varieties of couscous we just talked about, which involves that rolling process, Israeli couscous is not couscous. It is pasta. 100% through and through. It is pasta. That doesn't surprise me at all. It is definitely not couscous. And it's not really Israeli either. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So, let's go back to the beginning of the story. Due to mass migration of Jews to Israel in the 1950s from Eastern Europe, the Prime Minister at the time, David Ben-Gurion, needed to find a new staple food source to supplement rice because rice was a bit expensive and there was a lot of people turning up with literally no money emigrating in. So he needed something that could be mass-produced really quickly that was going to be really cheap. Now, this Osem food company in Israel took up the task to get this done. So the original Israeli couscous, as I said before, it's called petitim, which translates roughly in Hebrew, it translates to little crumbles. Now, these were actually made from a wheat paste so basically a wheat dough, the same as pasta, which was just forced into pellets through a machine-made process. And it was actually originally made in the shape of long-grain rice, rather than in the round shape of couscous at all. So it was basically rice pellets made in a machine out of wheat dough to form uh, this thing that was actually nicknamed Ben Gurion's rice after the president, after the prime minister. Because <laughs> once yeah. again, if you're trying to be healthy by ordering the Israeli couscous <laughs> instead of the pasta dish, you're wrong. It's pasta. <laughs> so yeah, completely different from couscous where you're rolling this thing and then cooking it. He's just made up a wheat paste and forced it into little pasta pellets. And, then instead of air drying the grains, they actually toasted them, which does give them a different flavor. Ah. So like, obviously, it's a soft dish wheat paste that's forced into this shape. Yep. And then, yeah, they toast them. So it does give it a different flavor. So that's definitely a good reason to have it. It's not all weird and bad. It's, obviously, it's still good. But um, after the rice supply actually increased and became cheaper again so that immigrants could afford it, the substitute rice wasn't really needed anymore. So they decided to change the shape 
of the pellets. So instead of being rice-shaped, they decided to make them similar to the maftul that I mentioned before, the Palestinian couscous. So actually, the size is similar to the Palestinian one. Mm-hmm. Pearl couscous itself, the Lebanese version, is much bigger than those. And it's also a little similar to something else that's popular in Eastern European Jewish cuisine, which is called falafel, which is toasted little egg-based noodle pasta balls. Yeah. So yeah, um, they made them round. That's the difference. The, they went, we don't need them to be rice shaped anymore because we're not trying to trick people into having cheap rice anymore. <laughs> so, Let's turn them into something that's also popular in this country and that people will want to buy. Let's make them round. But we're making them super easy and cheap because we're using a machine to just force press these things. Wow. And yeah, so the Osem Food Company in, in Israel today, they actually still make this, of course, but they also make SpaghettiOs style, like little... Uh, little spaghetti-o versions. No, like al- alphabetic spaghetti? <laughs> um, just spaghetti-o's, so just the O's. Oh, just those. And they also make small stars. So, yes, this couscous uh, is a pasta, and it, it proved very popular, so they made it into lots of different shapes. Now, for 40 or so years since the 1950s, up until the 90s, the pititim was really only popular in Israel. That's not something that had left Israel. But in 1993, an, es- an Israeli-born chef, Mika Sharon, invited the executive chef of New York's Tribeca Grill, quite a famous restaurant. Uh, He invited him over to dinner at his house. And actually, he'd come over to eat something else, but he saw Mika's daughter eating the pititim. Pititim. I can't pronounce this. This is very difficult. And he was like, what is she eating? That's really interesting. And like, oh, it's kids' food. It's just my kids' food. We don't eat that. That's like, that's something we give to kids. It's quick. We we boil it up. It takes 10 minutes. It's kids' food. And he said, can I just try some of that? And he was like, this is really interesting. I could totally work with this and try and make something at the restaurant. So he actually then added Israeli couscous to the Tribeca Grill menu at this fancy restaurant in New York. Oh. And because obviously Pititim would have been very confusing on the menu, it'd be like, what is this? He just went, well, it's Israeli. It looks a bit like couscous. Let's call it Israeli couscous. Because it's not couscous, it's pasta. They don't even really call it couscous in Israel. It's called pititim. Oh my God. <laughs> but it was an instant hit because people were like, this is a cool new thing and it's yeah. from Israel and this is cool and it's New York, so we love it. And loads of different restaurants around New York started selling it and then it went nationwide. And this was already a thing, like Israelis who had immigrated to America were all eating it at home. Yeah, of course. They're like, what are you on about? (laughs) Yeah, just like, oh, something I give my kids. This is some like cheap little food we give them. So yeah, it became a thing. And they went, well, the brand Israeli couscous, that works a lot better than using the Hebrew name. So let's call it that. And so there, there you go. Comes from Israel. Looks a bit like couscous, Israeli couscous. There you go. Marketing. We've all been marketed. Yeah, we have been marketed 100%. It's pasta. There is no doubt in my mind, Israeli couscous, unlike the other one we talked about, this is an extruded shape made in a machine to look like couscous, but it's wheat paste, it's pasta. But what about the other types of couscous? What about the ones that are rolled? Are they pasta? They're not made from a dough or a paste, they are just rolled from flour and water. I don't know. I don't know. What what is it? I don't know. I'm starting to get so confused with it all. It started off confusing, it's still confusing, but hopefully everyone's learned something along the way. Israeli couscous is named in America, in New York, pretty much, and it's not couscous. No, but everything else is a weird rolled semolina ball. Yeah, pretty much. 
So there you go. I can't prove the couscous is not pasta. Everyone's going to have to make up their own mind. You got to make up your own mind. You got to tweet us at Food Fun Travel. Is the original couscous, not the Israeli one, is the original one pasta or not pasta? I'm personally, I'm saying no. I think I think it should be couscous. I think there's all those products that are couscous, and then Israeli couscous is pasta. Yeah. And I think all of those other ones are couscous. Yeah. It's a thing. I, I, I tend to agree. As I said before, the whole way through the show, I said cousins. They're cousins. They're not, you know, they're not the same thing, but they are distant cousins. But I think they should get to be called couscous yeah. rather than similar pasta, pasta cousins. I think they're couscous. All right. That's it for this episode. So thanks again for listening. As I said, the the story of couscous is crazier yeah. and weirder than I ever thought it could be. Wow! And yeah, so hopefully we've uh, hopefully we've made some sense because it is crazy. But yeah, there we go. So if you've enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed other episodes, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done yet on whatever channel you listen. Please make sure you leave us a five star review. Anything less than five is not very helpful because it lowers our score in general, which means people don't bother trying to listen. If you don't like the show, don't listen to the show. So it's that easy. If you like the show and you made it this far, obviously you like the show enough to give us five stars. So that's a good reason to give us a five-star review. Leave us some nice comments. If you leave us an awesome comment, we are going to start reading some of these out on the show. Uh, at some point, it will happen. Uh, we'll look through the different reviews and see what's happened, and we'll read them out, give you some shout-outs for all of our regular listeners. So thank you for being a supporter. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. And don't forget, you can get the companion article for this episode with all the correct spellings of all those things that I could not pronounce properly at foodfuntravel.com slash couscous podcast. And on our blog, you'll also find lots of other food travel inspiration. So do check us out at foodfuntravel.com if you haven't done that yet. And that's about it. This has been The Dish and we'll see you on the next episode. I think next episode we're talking about the Island of Rhodes. So another bit of yes. Mediterranean stuff, but definitely mm. some different food there in Rhodes. There is some tasty food going on there. Oh, yes, there is. All right. We will see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Traveling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.